Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, because it's in the news, because it's what people want to talk about, what they want to hear about, we are once again going to cover the coronavirus. And with that statement, YouTube is very likely to demonetize this video. So like with the rest of my coronavirus-related videos, I would ask those folks that are enjoying virtual legality that come in here and we have good conversations in the comments to these videos to like, to subscribe, to do all those good things that so many people ask you to do on YouTube. If you're listening to this on its podcast form, to put a review down, even if you don't write anything, to just put five stars down or wherever you are listening to this podcast, I would very much appreciate that primarily because... These videos just aren't getting out there as much as talking about things like Animal Crossing and video games and Spider-Man and Sony and Disney. And a number of people offered me suggestions to combat that somewhat, calling the coronavirus different things, the beer disease, the C-virus as a reference to Resident Evil and those kinds of things. And I appreciate those, and I absolutely could do that. In my opinion, though, I think it's unnecessary. I think YouTube and their robots have gone a little bit too far with all of this. And I find it to be distracting to the conversation at hand. Coronavirus is a thing. There's nothing wrong with talking about it. I don't think that CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or wherever you might otherwise get your coverage of the task force and various other things that are happening today are having difficulty getting advertisers to advertise on their channels. So for the most part, I find the conversation ridiculous. And I don't want to add that distraction to what is already a fairly complicated conversation. So with that disclaimer out of the way, if I cover coronavirus, which it looks like I will be doing at least off and on for the next little while, at minimum, I'm probably going to say this at the beginning of that video that says, hey, we're not going to get the coverage. We're not going to get suggested by YouTube. If you could go help, if you could comment, if you could share, I would really appreciate that. As I've said before, that's obviously not for those folks that are just jumping into their first virtual legality. I don't expect anybody to like, subscribe, or otherwise share this video without knowing first what it is I'm going to say, what a virtual legality episode even is. So if this is your first time here in virtual legality, sit back, relax, hopefully enjoy, and we'll see you on the other end where hopefully you are then liking, subscribing, and sharing. So this video today with the thumbnail, Can They Do That?, is all about the Defense Production Act of 1950. And we see here in this CNN article from Wednesday that Trump has invoked the Defense Production Act to expand production of hospital masks and more. And when they say invoke here, they really mean reference, that he's going to do something. This was on Wednesday of last week. President Donald Trump said during Wednesday's White House press briefing that he will be invoking the Defense Production Act to help make up for potential medical supply shortages and deploy two hospital ships as the U.S. battles the coronavirus pandemic. Note the use by the media of the term battles. You'll hear things like the war on coronavirus, just like we've heard things like the war on X throughout our lifetimes in the United States. That is useful rhetoric for what we are going to talk about today, which is, can this act actually be used to fight a virus? And we're going to see the statutory authority that they've given. We're going to look at the Constitution a little bit to talk about what it means to be in the national defense. The long answer is in this video. The shorter answer is, yes, the president and Congress can do what they like so long as the court doesn't strike it down. And in an emergency context, the courts are very unlikely to strike down all but the most egregious offenses to the Constitution. 
So what we are looking at right now is a legal discussion, is a theoretical discussion about what the limits of the constitutional authority, particularly of the executive, are, but also what Congress can delegate to that executive. But at the end of the day, if a court isn't likely to cause trouble for what President Trump or the future presidents of the United States or the past presidents would invoke under the powers that are granted to them by Congress, then to some extent we're talking about angels on the head of a pin. Doesn't mean the conversation isn't useful because we should always be looking at, should these laws be changed? Should we be reflecting on what authority is given to the president and Congress? Maybe more authority needs to be given directly in the Constitution. But otherwise, is this kind of statutory infrastructure a good thing overall for the country, especially when we can, from a real politic perspective, from a philosophical perspective, look at an emergency context and say, in an emergency Nobody is very likely to start arguing very hard against presidential powers or congressional powers. So we have to be even more careful about what kind of pre-authority is given in those contexts because there's going to be such a reluctance to push back on anything. Trump said that he sees the country on wartime footing and himself as a wartime president amid the coronavirus crisis. I view it, in a sense, as a wartime president said after announcing he was invoking the Defense Production Act. The Federal Emergency Management Agency describes the act as the primary source of presidential authorities to expedite and expand the supply of resources from the U.S. industrial base to support military energy space and homeland security programs. That's an apt description, but as we will see in the definitions that they use, there's actually a little bit more built in, which is what the president is very likely to be using to try to enforce what we are about to discuss with respect to General Motors, which obviously hits close to home because General Motors is here in Southeast Michigan where Hogue Law makes its home. And in the interest of full disclosure, General Motors has in the past had legal relationships with uh, me in various capacities. Uh, I can't speak to that more, but I can say that I have worked with folks at General Motors. Uh, I have worked with other folks at the various other big three enterprises. Uh, and I can't tell you exactly more detail about that due to attorney-client privilege and some other ethical rules that I have with respect to my legal practice. But I have worked in and around the, the big three autos, and that's probably no surprise. If you work or operate or have ever been to Southeast Michigan, you know that very, very, very many aspects of our industry, whether that's suppliers or sub-suppliers or folks that supply those sub-suppliers, have some kind of touch point with some of the big three autos. And so that's no surprise, but it does mean that I should disclose those kinds of things when we talk about them in this context. An executive order issued Wednesday afternoon indicated that the president will use the act to obtain health and medical resources needed to respond to the spread of COVID-19, including personal protective equipment and ventilators. The order also states that Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar may consult with other agency heads to determine the proper nationwide priorities and allocation, allocation's an interesting word there, of all health and medical resources, including controlling the distribution of such materials in the civilian market for responding to the spread of COVID-19 within the United States. All of that language is actually tied to a specific portion of this Production Act that isn't otherwise often used. And we're going to see that as well. But before we do, that was Wednesday. That was just the president in his press conference kind of seeding the ground for what he was going to do, what he was likely to do with these powers that had been granted to him. 
Now, before we get to what powers he actually wound up exerting on Friday of last week, I did want to give a hat tip. I always love it when people flag things for me that they would like to see discussed in virtual legality. This one is from Joseph LaRussa on my Twitter. He said, hey, Hogue, in light of Trump invoking the DPA for GM to produce ventilators, maybe a fun virtual legality topic to cover the interpretation of the DPA to cover a viral outbreak as a matter of national defense. Just a suggestion, which... I replied, hey, it's a bit outside my waters. I'm not regularly getting into the 1950s Defense Production Act in my regular day-to-day legal uh, practice. But if I can frame it correctly, it sure is interesting. Strange times, hope you were staying healthy. To which, and I give the hat tip here, but I have to call him out here. He says, bah, it's statutory interpretation in the government ordering businesses to do something. If that's not in your wheelhouse, Mr. Business Law Firm, nothing is. So as you can see, I have rewarded now Mr. LaRussa for essentially calling me out on Twitter. And I can't help but think that by giving this hat tip on my YouTube video, that's going to result in more people saying things like, bah, this is your wheelhouse, cover it now. But in any event, he's joking around with me. I very much appreciate being kind of asked about various things like this because I can't see everything, especially now with my practice and with all that's happening in the news uh, and around the country and around the world. I very much appreciate folks saying, hey, you should cover this. And I'll look into most things that people direct me towards. If I don't wind up covering something, it doesn't mean I didn't look at whatever it is you might have recommended. It just means that I didn't feel that was a good fit for virtual legality. So as you can see here from this tweet, President Trump did actually wind up invoking the DPA. We've got here a Hill article says Trump uses Defense Production Act to require GM to make ventilators. President Trump on Friday used the Defense Production Act to compel General Motors to produce ventilators to combat the coronavirus after days of hesitating to use the powers in the law. Interesting framing again, but fair enough. The president in a statement said the federal government had abandoned negotiations with the automaker on ventilator production, complaining that the automaker was wasting time. Our negotiations with GM regarding its ability to supply ventilators have been productive, But our fight against the virus is too urgent to allow the give and take of the contracting process to continue to run its normal course. I actually like that description. President Trump, whether you like him or hate him, does have experience with negotiating contracts, as I do. And that is a very long form process. Sometimes when people are first getting into high level commercial contracting, they don't realize exactly how long the process generally takes because there are a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross. And so President Trump is actually saying here, hey, that's normal. It was too urgent to allow the give and take of the contracting process to continue to run its normal course because when you're negotiating something between the federal government and General Motors, those are both entities with a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And this is a very important set of contracts for public relations, really from both sides. And then he said, GM was wasting time. Today's action will help ensure the quick production of ventilators that will save American lives. Okay, so... He's trying to attack General Motors, put General Motors in its place a little bit. The Trump administration had been negotiating with GM to make tens of thousands of ventilators, but talks broke down due to concerns that the price tag would exceed $1 billion. And then he continues with the attacks. As usual with this General Motors, things just never seem to work out. They said they were going to give us 40,000 much-needed ventilators very quickly. Now they are saying it will only be 6,000 in late April and they want top dollar. Always a mess with the CEO, Mary Barra. And we see here the direct statement, today I signed a presidential memorandum directing the Secretary of Health and Human Services to use any and all authority available under the Defense Production Act to require General Motors to accept, perform, and prioritize federal contracts for ventilators. 
Our negotiations with GM regarding its ability to supply ventilators have been productive. You see the statements that we just read from this Hill article. And then we get a little bit further down. I just want to put a pin in these kinds of comments because it's very interesting when we talk about this, when we talk about the nature of the relationships between the executive branch and the congressional branch and what authority is vested in them by the Constitution. Democrats, obviously the opposite party from President Trump, who is a Republican, largely expressed relief that Trump had finally engaged the DBA after days of holding out. We desperately needed the Defense Production Act invoked to ensure the production of life-saving ventilators. We are relieved that just happened. Lives depend on it, Cuomo tweeted. The governor of uh, uh, New York, Andrew Cuomo. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden said during a virtual roundtable event that Trump's order was good news. We were suggesting he do that over a month ago, but the point is he's done it, and I congratulate him for it. So the Democrats and presumably the Republicans, at least those that are generally in favor of the Trump administration, are presumably okay with this kind of activity. But note how unusual it is, right? Trump uses an act from 1950 to require GM to make ventilators. That's the headline. And maybe that headline is a little bit reductive because primarily what it's focused on is causing them to accept a contract, perform it, and prioritize. And there are going to be limitations. There are going to be regulations that cover what should be in that contract. I did not, as part of this video, decide to take you through the entirety of the federal acquisition regulations. They are ridiculous. If you've ever negotiated or even seen a government contract, you know that the way government contracting works is that they have a series of these FAR provisions that are incorporated into each kind of... Uh, acquisition contract that they enter into with these various parties, and they are very difficult to read. So the point is, is that General Motors has to enter into one of these things pursuant to this authority under the act. There's still going to be a little bit of processing to figure out exactly what it looks like, what General Motors is going to get paid, how that is going to function. But right now, General Motors is presumably acting under the precept that they have to enter into this contract so they can start actually moving their production lines, changing whatever it needs to at the warehouse level, at the production level to make sure that the ventilators are ultimately going to be made and not have to wait until a contract is signed to start that process. That's really the purpose of something like this. But it's no small thing when the federal government says there's an emergency and we can now make you car manufacturer who does have production capability to make us ventilators to prioritize those contracts above any other contracts that you might otherwise have entered into prior to this, and we can do it because there's a national emergency. So I want to take a look at this act. As I said, it's from 1950, and the really, really important part is going to be in the definitions. If you were following us in virtual legality last week, you know that we covered a story about whether or not the Department of Justice, through the federal laws, could characterize someone that was licking something in a Walmart or otherwise intentionally infecting people with COVID-19 as a bioterrorist and invoke all of the kind of homeland security authority of the Department of Justice against that person. And we talked about the fact that because the definitions are written so broadly, they may well have that authority, but it's a tortured reading of the statute and that we should in general avoid these tortured readings. This is a similar kind of definitional question. And much like that video that we did last week, this is a question that arises in the context of a national emergency. So most folks are going to be of the mind to say, okay, yeah, let them do what they need to do. It's good that GM is going to be forced to make ventilators because we need those ventilators. But emergencies are always issues. 
for the federal government, for the state government, obviously there are a couple of people around the country chafing at what they are seeing from various governors and various aspects of the federal government. And so it's still worthwhile to have the conversation, even in the context of, yeah, this is an emergency at a national level, and this is probably something that needs to be done. Is it something that the federal government should just be seizing uh, or requiring rather than entering into kind of good faith negotiations with these civilian contractors, which if we follow kind of market analysis from a usual basis, should be inclined to make things that are desperately needed because when you have things that are desperately needed, you're going to get paid for the provision of those supplies. So it becomes a very, very complicated discussion about why exactly it's so difficult for General Motors and the federal government to enter into a contract like this kind of on a natural basis. And what you got from President Trump is essentially it was taking too long, which might be a fair comment, but let's take a look at the statute. So I've pulled up here what looks to be a very short, simple statute. It's not. These are the sections of the Defense Production Act of 1950. But we see here, it's got a title that names it the Defense Production Act. It's got declarations of policy, which aren't terribly useful, right? These are things that says Congress finds that it's useful for the president to be able to do these things, to prioritize various things. The security of the U.S. is dependent on the domestic industrial base to supply materials and services. We need to ensure the vitality of that base. We need to provide for the national security, all this other stuff. It's basically just what we might consider the recitals in a contract setting. And so that's what Congress says is necessary. And then it starts giving powers. And we've got here subchapter one where we're mostly going to live in terms of our conversation. And we see here there are a set of powers that are given to the president for priority in contracts and orders to prevent hoarding, penalties that can be imposed, limitations on those powers. The Congress is asked to authorize things like wage controls. The president can't do a certain set of things without congressional approval. Energy is included as this as a material that is necessary to strengthening kind of the domestic security situation and some other things about modernization. But what we're most concerned about are these lightly highlighted sections in 50 U.S.C. 4511, priority in contracts and orders. This is where the president's authority is going to be derived from. In section A, it says the president is hereby authorized to require that performance under contracts or orders, which he deems necessary or appropriate to promote the national defense, and we're going to see that phrase a lot, shall take priority over performance under any other contract or order and to require acceptance and performance of such contracts or orders. And also, subsection two here, to allocate material services and uh, facilities in such manner upon such conditions and to such extent as he shall deem necessary or appropriate to promote the national defense. So we've got two powers here in terms of the allocation of material services and facilities. He can require performance. He can require that that performance take priority and he can require the acceptance of the contract that gives rise to that obligation of performance. That's a lot of authority, right? Congress has, through its legislative power, said the president has this specific authority as long as it is exerted for the purposes of protecting the national defense or promotion of the national defense. He's also allowed to allocate material services and facilities in such manner and upon such conditions as he deems appropriate to promote that national defense. That's a lot of authority. In subsection B, we get a little bit more. The powers granted in this section shall not be used to control the general distribution of any material in the civilian market 
unless the president finds that such material is a scarce and critical material essential to the national defense and that the requirements of the national defense for such material cannot otherwise be met without creating a significant dislocation. In other words, he has to do it in order to get those materials in for the purposes of promoting the national defense. These are big, big powers. And yeah, they're from an act in 1950, but this act has continued to be renewed over the course of legislative council. And so these things exist right now today, and they are not so infrequently used as we will see. Now, they are specifically used in contexts where we might find their use a little bit less problematic. But let's note a couple of things. If you remember the tweet from Mr. LaRussa, he asked me to talk about the national defense and whether the national defense was implicated here because he had presumably read these sections or already knew how the Defense Production Act of 1950 read, which if he did, more credit to him. And he wanted to say, okay, is this national defense? We're talking about a viral outbreak. And when we generally think of national defense in our heads, I think we generally think of military infrastructure or protection against invasion, national defense doesn't necessarily mean defense against viruses, against what is a very, very bad flu-like coronavirus that is a threat to overwhelming the healthcare system. But is that national defense? We could certainly kind of frame it as something like general welfare. And while I haven't done a video on it, I could do one that talks about the broad authority that the governors of the various states of the United States have to protect the general welfare and health of their citizenry. But while these states have that authority under the Constitution, in general, the federal government doesn't have that authority. The federal government is a government of limited powers as put forth in the Constitution, and those powers that are not given to the government are reserved for the states. And if they're not used by the states, they're reserved for the people, although whether or not that provision is ever used is an open question. But right now, what we've got here is a statute that says, okay, national defense is within our ambit. As we talked about last week, it's a bit of a constitutional hook. We want to tie it to a power that we are expressly granted in the Constitution. So because we have that authority to provide for the national defense, we will now, as Congress, delegate it to the president. But does coronavirus fall under the national defense definition? Because if it doesn't, none of this should apply, right? Every single one of these sections that you can see is specifically tied to the promotion of the national defense. So let's take a look at those definitions. Before we do, I just wanted to talk about some of the other subchapters that survived here. We've got a subchapter here that allows the president to have loans and guarantees to help essentially facilitate businesses to do what he needs done in terms of provision of materials in case, say, a bank or someone else was getting involved and, and was causing trouble for whether or not GM or someone else could actually provide these things. The federal government is authorized in particular for the promotion of national defense to provide specific loans and guarantees. This is apparently rarely used. And then we get into the general provisions, which covers a lot of the stuff that is normal. Uh, we've got here some limitations, some definitions, and some other things that are essentially related to the operation of this thing, how an administration works, what delegation means, how this chapter gets terminated, even though it's been renewed a number of times since 1950. But what we are most specifically concerned with is, is what is national defense under this law, because that's what matters. And we've got here in the definitions section, national defense. The term national defense means programs for military and energy production or construction, military or critical infrastructure assistance to any foreign nation, homeland security, stockpiling, space, and any directly related activity. So that sentence actually reads fairly normally, 
right? We just talked about what the intuition would be for what national defense means. It says, hey, the term national defense means programs for the military and also energy production because after a number of years from 1950, Congress determined that energy production and the security of energy infrastructure in the United States was specifically very, very much tied to the military security of the country. So they tie in energy production here with military. They also say military or critical infrastructure assistance to foreign nations, presumably allies of the United States, but that those can relate specifically to our national defense because if you've got some kind of foreign policy that relates to keeping up an ally with specific critical infrastructure, then that entire policy should naturally fall under the concept of national defense. Not big problems with the definitions here. Homeland security is a little bit more tricky, primarily because the Constitution is mostly concerned with foreign invasion, with acting deliberately by foreign bodies against the United States, but it mostly falls under the same bucket. Homeland security, meaning coverage of things that are within our borders that might or might not be domestically created, but that doesn't necessarily result in an invasion or a war scenario where the Constitution is more directly applicable. Stockpiling. You see there I've highlighted in yellow because I think that's going to be useful to them in terms of the definition, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything by itself. And by virtue of statutory construction, generally we would say, okay, they mean stockpiling to help one of these other things, military energy production, critical infrastructure for a foreign nation, home, homeland security, etc. That stockpiling relates to one of those things, even though it's not terribly well defined. And if this is your first visit to virtual legality, welcome to the wonderfully ambiguous world of statutory drafting. Also, in terms of ambiguity, space. Now, presumably, we can assume that refers to outer space, uh, the, the space above our atmosphere where we might otherwise launch rocket ships and things. Space isn't a great legal term, especially when not otherwise defined in any respect. And also note that national defense just includes the word space. It's not the military control of space. Uh, it's not space exploration. It's not anything. It's just space. So the term national defense means programs for space. Okay. As well as any directly related activity to space. All right. So that's a little ambiguous, but we see mostly an emphasis on military activity. Then we get to the next sentence. Such term includes emergency preparedness activities conducted pursuant to Title VI of the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. And here's where the rubber hits the road for this particular definition, right? I highlighted stockpiling. That might be enough if President Trump or some other portion of his executive branch wanted to assert it. Stockpiling might be good enough to just say, hey, that's national defense, but they will probably wind up leaning on the emergency preparedness activities definition, which we can find over here. So I've pulled up the relevant law here and it says emergency preparedness means all those activities and measures designed or undertaken to prepare for or minimize the effects of a hazard upon the civilian population. Now hazard is a defined term itself, which means an emergency or disaster resulting from a natural disaster or an accidental or man-caused event. Now, if you read that definition of hazard and say, Rick, I can't quite figure out whether there is anything that could possibly fall outside of that definition. Well, I would agree with you. It would seem that an emergency coming from a natural disaster or a man-caused event, whether accidental or deliberate, is just about every emergency that one can imagine. Presumably, coronavirus falls under the ambit of a hazard, 
which is a emergency resulting from an accidental event. Uh, but is it? Could also be a natural disaster because if we look at the definition of natural disaster, generally speaking, it again goes with what you might intuit, hurricane, tornado, storm, flood, high water, tidal wave, tsunami, earthquake, volcanic eruption, landslide, snowstorm, etc. But it also includes the umbrella term or other catastrophe, which if you're following along at home, you might already know is not a defined term in the statute. Catastrophe isn't otherwise covered. So it basically means any really bad stuff that could happen in any part of the United States which causes or which may cause substantial damage or injury to civilian property or persons. So just like we talked about last week when we said virtually anything that you can think of would fall under the category of biological agent, just about anything you can think of falls under the term hazard. So if emergency preparedness means all those activities and measures designed or undertaken to prepare for or minimize the effects of a hazard upon the civilian population, it means just about anything, and certainly COVID-19 would appear to broadly fall under that categorization. In particular, we've got here in subsection A, measures to be undertaken in preparation for anticipated hazards includes the procurement and stockpiling of necessary materials and supplies. So if you follow these definitions all the way back, you've got now emergency preparedness includes the procurement and stockpiling of necessary materials and supplies, which is directly involved in the national defense, which is itself specifically allowed for, for the president to require folks to enter into contracts with respect to. So what we've got here is a president that has this broad authority to require civilian contractors, General Motors in this case, to enter into a contract to help facilitate the stockpiling of things like ventilators or masks or whatever else that General Motors might be capable of making. There are requirements in here that say the president has to assert that the party in question is capable of making them. The president can't just issue an executive order saying that Hogue Law has to make ventilators because not only am I incapable of doing that, if I were capable of doing that, they would not be happy with the quality of ventilators that I could provide. So the president has to make that assertion, has to find them capable of the performance of the contracts he would otherwise force upon them. But following this all the way down the line, we see how you get to this broad authority. Now, just because Congress asserts that they have this authority, because it's a Congress that's asserting that they have this authority and then they are telling the president that he can exert it on their behalf, just because they do that doesn't mean it's fully constitutional, but it does kind of give an assumption of its constitutionality, and particularly in respect of emergency actions, that's going to be something that's difficult to combat. Now, this is an updated report from the Congressional Research Service called the Defense Production Act of 1950, History, Authorities, and Considerations for Congress, which I will link in the description to this video. This was updated earlier this month, and it would be very interesting for me personally to see the red line that shows what updates were made here. But what I wanted to flag here for you is how they describe how this thing has been used, because we've got it in the news right now, but it's not that rare for this particular act to be invoked. It says examples of use of Title I authorities. Title I is where we're focused, if you remember. Title II is loans. Title III is kind of general authority. Title I says the authority to prioritize contracts is routinely employed by the Department of Defense, which makes sense. When you say you're going to promote the national defense, it seems like the Department of Defense is the right body to actually utilize that authority. 
These prioritized contracts are typically issued under the Department of Commerce's delegated authority with respect to materials, services, and facilities, including construction materials, and under its defense priorities and allocation system regulations guiding the use of this authority. DOD has reported that it includes a priority rating as a standard clause in virtually all eligible contracts and orders for items under DOC's resource jurisdiction, meaning as part of the provisions that the DOD generally requires in the contracts that it enters into with folks, it has this priority rating concept that this contract will be elevated in specific cases if the Department of Defense determines that it is necessary and that those are otherwise agreed to even outside of the statutory authority that is otherwise vested in the executive branch, which is fascinating, but probably not all that unusual if you imagine how the Department of Defense is entering into these contracts with folks. But it does mean that just kind of on a baseline level, this particular act is invoked a lot. Some past examples of DOD's use of Title I priorities authority include supporting the Integrated Ballistic Missile Defense System, the B-2 bomber, the VC-25A presidential aircraft, i.e. Air Force One, and mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles. So the Department of Defense is using this all the time, which makes sense why this act in particular has been renewed so often, because the Department of Defense wants to have the ability to prioritize the creation of these specific military vehicles if the need should arise. While the priorities authority is used far less frequently by other departments and agencies, it has been used for both the prevention of terrorism and natural disaster preparedness. Obviously, natural disaster preparedness is where we're going to wind up being focused. For example, the Federal Bureau of Investigation has prioritized contracts in support of the Terrorist Screening Center Program, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers prioritized contracts in support of the Greater New Orleans Hurricane and Storm Damage Risk Reduction System Program. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, now FEMA, is actually the agency that is authorized under that act that we were just reading the definition for emergency preparedness in, right? This specific act is where FEMA comes from. So FEMA is the one that is using that definition that is so broad that probably does apply to COVID-19, at least in the way that the statute is written. The Federal Emergency Management Agency used the authority extensively during the 2017 disaster season, including prioritizing contracts for manufactured housing units, food and bottled water, and the restoration of electrical transmission and distribution systems in Puerto Rico. FEMA came in and said this contract needs to be prioritized, and they might have said this contract needs to be entered into. That you, civilian contractor that otherwise has the ability to do this thing that we need, restoration of electrical transmission, you have to prioritize what we ask you to do under this authority that is granted to us under this specific act from the 1950s. Further, U.S. allies have used the authority to assist with defense-related procurement issues. The specific Title I prioritization and allocation authorities related to domestic energy was used by the Department of Energy to ensure that emergency supplies of natural gas continued to flow to California utilities, helping to avoid threatened electrical blackouts in early 2001, which is, of course, probably very interesting to the California listeners to something like this because California has been facing its own electrical blackouts and power-related issues in as late as, as far as I'm aware, in 2019, and we didn't necessarily see this same kind of usage of this act in respect of those instances. Now, that's the main kind of power. Unlike that prioritization authority, the allocation authority has not been used since the Cold War. The authority does support the Civil Reserve Air Fleet Program, which was created in 1951. Under the CRAF program, civilian aircraft are allocated for the potential use if required by the Department of Defense, 
so that it may augment its airlift capability with civilian aircraft during a national defense-related crisis, a kind of Dunkirk scenario. In return for their participation in the CRAF program, civilian carriers are given preference in carrying commercial peacetime cargo and passenger traffic for the DOD. So the Department of Defense uses that particular item as leverage for the allowance for civilian aircraft to do various things that they want to do to make money. But allocation authority in general is not used so often, which is one of the reasons why it's so interesting that this specific statement talks about allocation. Uh, we see here in the, the description that I'm in the wrong article, so apologies for that, that Trump specifically talks about the proper nationwide priorities and allocation of all health and medical resources that suggests that maybe he's going to invoke uh, a more broad reading of the statute than has been imposed in many, many years. This is described as since the Cold War, but they only ever referenced 1951, which maybe they include in that time frame. So those are a couple of examples of the authority, which means that this isn't a dead letter statute. This isn't a statute that is just on the books that everybody forgot about until President Trump decided to invoke it. This is something that is invoked very regularly, but almost always in respect of the creation of military vehicles or in respect to the allocation, the allocation of civilian vehicles for military use. It isn't used quite as often in respect of emergency management, although FEMA did use it with respect to uh, hurricanes and, and Puerto Rico and electrical transmission and things along those lines. But it seems clear that because that use was allowed and because I don't know that anybody ever challenged it, I didn't find any challenges in my research of this video to this specific act that FEMA's use of the act has generally been afforded a deal of deference, right? And that makes some amount of sense. But as is always the case, it's worthwhile to kind of go in and look at where the statutory authority might arise. So for those of you outside the United States, or for those of you that don't remember civics class that well, the Congress is vested with specific authority in the Constitution, and Congress is the one that gets almost all of the explicit authority to do anything. We're going to look at Article 2 that talks about the presidency, and we're going to see that famously, the president doesn't get much description of his or her powers at all but Congress gets a lot of description. And we see here at the very top of section eight of article one, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. And you say, Rick, we're done. We don't need to read anything else because as this says, Congress shall have the power to provide for the common defense and general welfare. Well, yes, but also no. See, in general, this hasn't been read to give a broad legislative authority to Congress to just provide for general welfare. Because if we did that, all this rest of the list, all the rest of the things that we cover in the description of how Congress should operate would be completely obviated, right? If Congress just had a general power to provide for the general welfare of the United States, then none of the rest of this is terribly necessary. So for the most part, the courts have not read this to give a broad legislative authority. I have, once again, in virtual legality, as is a danger, danger situation, pulled up the Wikipedia article regarding general welfare. But I did find this description to be pretty accurate, if not terribly nuanced. The United States Constitution contains two references to the general welfare, one occurring in the preamble and the other in the taxing and spending clause, that clause that we just read. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has held the mention of the clause in the preamble to the U.S. Constitution has never been regarded as the source of any substantive power. Makes total sense. The preamble are what we would consider the recitals. This is why we are doing these things, but they don't bestow operative legal authority. The Supreme Court held the understanding of the general welfare clause contained in the taxing and spending clause adheres to the construction given to it by Associate Justice Joseph Story in his 1833 Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. Justice Story concluded that the General Welfare Clause is not a grant of general legislative power, but a qualification on the taxing power, which includes within it a federal power to spend federal revenues on matters of general interest to the federal government. The court described Justice Story's view as the Hamiltonian position, as Alexander Hamilton had elaborated his view of the taxing and spending powers in his 1791 report on manufacturers. Story, however, attributes the position's initial appearance to Thomas Jefferson in his opinion on the Bank of the United States. All good things to read, and which you can check out in the links in this Wikipedia article. These clauses in the U.S. Constitution are an atypical use of a general welfare clause and are not considered grants of a general legislative power to the federal government, which is exactly what I said. And primarily the reason for that is because the rest of this wouldn't make any sense if Congress had that general authority. But what authority we can see for Congress is that they are very much in charge of war making and national defense in general. They get the power to define and punish piracies on the high seas, to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, to raise armies, to provide a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of land and naval forces, to provide for the calling forth of the militia, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. So from a broad perspective, providing for the national defense is absolutely, although not specifically referenced in words in the Constitution, one of Congress's specific express delegated authority of the people, right? Congress has this power to promote the national defense, which means without getting into a lot of nuance, especially without getting into years of law school and various classes on these specific items, that Congress has some authority to delegate its powers here to a third party, in particular, an executive branch agency or to the president, him or herself. So because Congress has this power and because Congress can delegate at least portions of this power to the president, then at least with respect to these specific powers, all of which relate to armies and navies and war and everything else, then Congress has the authority to give that power to the president. And as we see in Article 2 of the Constitution, the president doesn't get a lot of description for how to use those powers or what powers they have. It just says, the executive power shall be vested in the president of the United States of America. Now, if the Constitution were just being proposed today and we were doing a virtual legality episode on it, I would definitely point out that executive power is not a defined term. We don't get a lot of context for what the executive power might be. We understand it now from centuries of kind of review of not only what the founders intended, but how the United States and the office of the president have been operated during that time, that it means X, Y, and Z in terms of signing laws, in terms of executing those laws, what you might interpret as executive power from a kind of broad basis, but it doesn't actually have any of that definition in the constitution itself, which means the president has a somewhat nebulous power to do those things that the president thinks are necessary to execute the laws of the United States. As part of that nebulous power, there is one specific reference to what the president is. And section two gives that reference. It says the president shall be commander in chief of the army and navy of the United States 
and of the militia of the several states when it's called into actual service. Which means the president has a broad executive power, which we don't define. And the president is also very specifically the commander of the army and navy of the United States. And this was important to the founders to separate out into a political and civilian capacity the execution of war making. So that the Congress can set the rules for how an army is built, how a navy is built, but the president is actually the commander of those army and navy. That's the separation of power when it comes to the national defense and when it comes to war making. But what it also means is it's not terribly useful to us in interpreting whether or not the president can be granted authority to take over General Motors contracting capacity when faced with a viral outbreak, right? Is that actually national defense? Well, here it turns out that the fact that the Congress has actually allowed for the definition of national defense to include emergency preparedness is pretty dispositive. Not because we've ever actually prosecuted this, not because the Supreme Court has talked about this item specifically, but because of prior Supreme Court decisions that suggest, they don't mandate, but they suggest that when Congress gives this authority and when the president exerts this authority, that is the strongest position for the president to have. Not that the Supreme Court can't cut it down and say, hey, none of this was actually put forth in the Constitution, depending on what five folks on the Supreme Court might otherwise vote. But because Congress and the president agree on this specific reading of what power the president should have as bestowed upon him by Congress, then the president is probably going to be deferred to by the Supreme Court. And towards that end, towards that precept, I bring up a 1952 case, which is actually a place where the Supreme Court strikes down a presidential action. And that case is Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer. And the syllabus here says to avert a nationwide strike of steel workers in April 1952, which he believed would jeopardize national defense. The president issued an executive order directing the Secretary of Commerce to seize and operate most of the steel mills. The order was not based upon any specific statutory authority. That's important, but was based generally upon all powers vested in the president by the Constitution and laws of the United States and as president of the United States and commander in chief of the armed forces. In other words, there wasn't a production act that the president was relying on in this case. He was only relying on those two sentences, which we just read in the Constitution, that he's the executive and he's the commander in chief. The secretary issued an order seizing the steel mills and directing their presidents to operate them as operating managers for the United States in accordance with his regulations and directions. The president promptly reported these events to Congress, but Congress took no action. It had provided other methods for dealing with such situations and had refused to authorize governmental seizures of property to settle labor disputes. The steel companies sued the secretary in a federal district court, praying for a declaratory judgment and injunctive relief. The district court granted that injunction, which the Court of Appeals stayed. And this was a Supreme Court decision. To cut a long story short, because this isn't as important to what we're talking about today, they wind up saying, yeah, the president acted outside of his authority, primarily because there wasn't any statutory authority given by Congress. Now, you see here a couple of opinions and five concurrences and a dissent. This is not what we would call a clean Supreme Court decision. Whenever you see this many concurrences, it means that these justices agreed with the overall result. The president was wrong but disagreed with the reasoning that the court put forth in getting to that position. Or if they didn't disagree, they at least thought of it slightly differently. It's a concurrence. It's not an agreement. They are not signed on to the main opinion. 
So what I wanted to focus on here was the concurrence offered by Justice Jackson, because I think it's important and I think it's useful to kind of interpreting what we are looking at today. It says, that comprehensive and undefined presidential powers hold both practical advantages and grave dangers for the country will impress anyone who has served as legal advisor to a president in time of transition and public anxiety. This is certainly in 2020, a time of public anxiety. The actual art of governing under our constitution does not and cannot conform to judicial definitions of the power of any of its branches based on isolated clauses or even single articles torn from context. While the constitution diffuses power, the better to secure liberty, it also contemplates that practice will integrate the dispersed powers into a workable government. That, yeah, we only itemize these powers and we only say this much about, hey, the president's just the executive, but we trust that the government will figure out how to govern. It enjoins upon its branches separateness, but interdependence, autonomy, but reciprocity. Presidential powers are not fixed, but fluctuate depending upon their disjunction or conjunction with those of Congress. The president executes the laws, right? And that means that the president's power is derived from whatever laws the president is executing. That makes a lot of sense. And again, this is a concurrence. So this particular case is a whole kind of bevy of different opinions as to what happened here and why. But this is, I think, a very useful kind of structure for interpreting presidential power, especially in the emergency context that we're talking about right now. We may well begin by a somewhat oversimplified grouping of practical situations in which a president may doubt or others may challenge his powers, and by distinguishing roughly that the legal consequences of this factor of relativity. And here are the three buckets that he places presidential powers in. When the president acts pursuant to an express or implied authorization of Congress, his authority is at its maximum, for it includes all that he possesses in his own right, as executive, plus all that Congress can delegate which is what we talked about. This specific act from 1950 tells the president that they can do this specific thing if they deem it to be the promotion of national defense. Now, somebody could challenge this, could say it isn't the promotion of national defense. Congress doesn't have the authority to define that as national defense. I have all these problems with what they are doing to GM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can have that challenge. But as a kind of assumption, Congress has granted this authority. Congress wrote that definition. The president is using that definition to do what the president thinks is authorized under that statute. So it falls under this bucket one. The president is at his maximum authority by virtue of the statute that Congress has written. When the president acts in absence of either a congressional grant or denial of authority, he can rely upon his own independent powers, but there is a zone of twilight in which he and Congress may have concurrent authority or in which its distribution is un uncertain. And then the third bucket, when the president takes measures incompatible with the expressed or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb, which all makes sense. I don't think it's anything terribly dramatic to say when Congress tells the president he can do something, the president is at his most powerful. When Congress doesn't otherwise say, it's kind of an open question. And when Congress says no, the president is at his lowest authority, which means that while we might be able to challenge the definition of national defense here, while a good well-reasoned argument could be that national defense was never intended to incorporate concepts like a viral outbreak, because Congress included expressly in its definition that it could, in fact, include emergency preparedness activities, 
then we've got a problem with any kind of challenge in court, which means General Motors has a problem, which means probably this will survive. And when I opened this video, I said, okay, we can take all this into account. This is an emergency situation. This is unlike anything that I've lived through in my lifetime. But it's those emergency situations that raise these kinds of questions. And when this ends, whenever that might be, this is the kind of thing where I would say, hey, maybe we should look back on that virtual legality episode that talked about what kind of power is vested in the federal government, in the president himself, and say, is this right? Because we're not going to get into a situation where the courts are likely to make any kind of determination on this while the emergency is pending. And so the time to evaluate these things is not when the emergency is pending. So I think the definition will survive right now because of the way the statute is written, because national defense specifically is intended to include emergency preparedness, even though it's an open question as whether Congress has that authority, whether Congress has that authority to delegate and whether the president can exert it in the way that they are doing with respect to General Motors. But because it's an emergency, that means that the power is at its strongest. I've pulled up now an Atlantic article here, which talks about Trump, right? This is from January and February of last year. And what's interesting about this article is that it talks all about how the president's emergency powers are way too broad, that the president can declare an emergency and he can do all these things like turn off the internet, like put troops in various places, like do things like commandeer General Motors to do what he would have them do. And it presents it as a big, big problem. And I think for the most part, outside of the shadow of an emergency like we face today, it is a big, big problem. The Constitution wasn't actually built to allow the president to just declare an emergency and assert whatever authority that he wants. And so articles like this in The Atlantic, I think, raise important points. But in the shadow of an emergency, you wind up getting quotes like this, right? The Democrats... The opposition to the president on this say he should have invoked presidential emergency authority earlier. They say because the public is largely in support of more ventilators and who wouldn't be, that that's the right side of the politics of this situation. Say, hey, I told him to do it a month ago. He should have done it then. That everybody believes in executive powers in an emergency context. So this video, I think, is important. I think it's a good discussion. I'm glad Mr. LaRusa asked me to have it. But the right time to have this discussion about these definitions, about whether they're too broad, whether they can be written too broadly, and whether they give the president too much authority, is in January and February of 2019. Now, this story, I think, goes a little bit too far, like a lot of things in the Atlantic. It likes to make all of this drama about the powers that President Trump could invoke to control the entirety of the United States. And I think in respect of the polarization of the political kind of conversation in the United States, going too far is a problem because I think you can make the conversation, you can make the argument with respect to President Trump or any other president, President Obama, whichever side of this that you fall on in terms of the political spectrum and make the argument that these powers are too strong, that the Constitution doesn't contemplate an emergency version of the government that can do all this stuff that the Constitution doesn't otherwise directly authorize and say, yeah, that's a big problem. Let's have that conversation. But when you vilify one side or the other, you wind up getting the other side to just ignore you as a crazy person. So when this is all said and done, I'd like to see more articles that actually take into account, should this be something that the president can do, whether it's Obama or Trump, whichever side that you fall on. And if we all agree that it's not, 
Should we not look at an act that was written in 1950 and say maybe 70 years later, it needs a few more contours, right? The end of this actual report that I didn't discuss in depth here talks about things that maybe Congress should change. Considerations for Congress. Maybe we should enhance oversight, everybody. Maybe the president has too much complete and plenary authority and maybe Congress should be getting reports uh, or have to get more consent. Maybe there should be more rulemaking. Uh, maybe there should be more declarations of policy. Maybe we should change the definitions. National defense is a really important definition. Should space be in there? Or maybe we should include things like counter-narcotics, cybersecurity, or organized crime. Maybe it should be broader. Again, this is from the Congressional Research Service, so they are designed to be non-partisan. And so they try to give these kinds of uh, authorities, try to give these kinds of recommendations on both sides of the political spectrum. They are non-partisan, I do think. They are very pro-Congress. They're very pro-Congressional authority, as you might suspect, because they are a service that essentially provides these kinds of reports to Congress. But that, yeah, maybe Congress, we should look at what this says. This thing hasn't been rewritten substantially since 1950. We've amended it. We've amended these definitions. We've revised things. We've allowed certain things to be repealed or otherwise ended. But maybe we should actually look at the whole darn thing. And now is not the time, right? Nobody's going to have this conversation now with COVID-19 out there, with the coronavirus out there. But hey, it's not like emergencies that give additional authority to the government just last forever and ever, right? Again, we return to Wikipedia for a list of national emergencies in the United States, which says a national emergency is a situation in which a government is empowered to perform actions not normally permitted. Now, I'm going to take offense to that statement just a little bit, at least with respect to the United States. The Emergency Act doesn't empower the government in so far as the government is empowered by the people. That's how the Constitution is read. The Constitution provides these powers to the government. What a government or national emergency actually does is assert additional powers by Congress and by the president. It doesn't become empowered. It's just a little bit different. Empowered meaning that someone has granted it this authority. Instead, it's just Congress and the president asking for it and declaring that they have it. Between the enactment of the National Emergencies Act in 1976 through March 13th, 2020, 61 emergencies have been declared and 34 are currently in effect. That's right. More than half of the emergencies declared since 1976, of which there are 60, 34 are currently in effect. And you say, Rick, I don't think there are 34 national emergencies right now in the United States. Are, are you sure? And what we get here is this is the termination column, right? This is where these national emergencies end, end date. We see here in 1979, blocking Iranian government property. That's still a national emergency. Or from 1994, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, still a national emergency. Prohibiting transactions with terrorists from 95, Clinton, still a national emergency. Iranians, how about blocking assets from significant narcotics traffickers from Clinton? This is the war on drugs declared in response to Colombian drug cartels, a national emergency since 1995. That's, that's the bulk of most of your lives. Declaration of a national emergency and invocation of emergency authority relating to the regulation of the anchorage and movement of vessels relating to the destruction of two civilian aircraft by the Cuban military. So this, you know, covers blockades and things. We've got sanctions from Sudan, sanctions to the Balkans, trade regulations for ex export control. 
here's one from 2001 that says reasserted presidential control of exports following the expiration of the Export Administration Act of 1979 and 1994. Now, this is an interesting one because this was a congressional act. It expired. And then the president seven years later said, no, it's back. And it just survives. This is from 2001. It's 19 years ago. No end date. And these have to be renewed uh, all the time by presidents to just continue to assert this authority. Declaration of national emergency by reason of certain terrorist attacks. We have been in a national emergency from 9-11 since then. And these ones all from 2001 relate all to that. Blocking property in Zimbabwe, protecting the development fund for Iraq. So the long story short here, those are Bush. We've got Obamas here. We got Trumps. And we get all the way down here to March 13th, 2020, coronavirus, COVID-19, national emergencies. These things survive. And why do they survive? Because the authority that is given to the federal government under the National Emergency Declaration Act says you get all these extra powers that aren't specifically allowed for you in peacetime. And so they just survive so that these powers can be asserted, which in my opinion is no great way to run a railroad, right? If we want to give Congress powers, we amend the constitution. If we want Congress to give those powers to the president, Congress passes a new law. Instead, what's happened is there's a blanket law from the seventies before I would argue probably most of the people listening to this video are born. And that blanket authority is asserted once, twice, three times, five times every year to do various things that aren't otherwise empowered for the president to do and aren't probably otherwise authorized for Congress to do directly because the constitutional amendment process is a bear and it was designed that way. But it's all okay because nothing bad ever happened to anyone just declaring emergency powers and keeping those emergency powers for themselves forever and ever, amen, right? In any event, the national defense is going to continue to be an argument to allow for these, these things that we have seen under the Defense Production Act. It's going to continue to be an argument for people that want to respond to emergencies. In this specific situation, it's going to be something that's very difficult to argue against from a political perspective and the right time to discuss these things to determine whether the definitions are too broad, whether the statute statutory authority is too great and whether the president is just permitted to do too much is when we all don't need a lot of ventilators and we all aren't operating at stay at home orders by the governors of the various states in which we live. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you found it enlightening, illuminating, educational. If this is your first video and you didn't otherwise respond at the start of this video to my request to like, subscribe, and to give me good reviews on my podcast forums, Please do so now if you like this. If you like, subscribe. Tell your friends that we're having these discussions, these important legal discussions that I don't think are necessarily adequately covered in YouTube or some of the other places that I see in social media. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.